go to James 1 in our Bibles. Before we look at James 1, um, as a church family, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And Barbara Perlman uh, went out to Missouri to be with her sister and she did pass away. She did know the Lord, which is good. Barbara's other sister who is with her does not know the Lord. And so let's pray for the family as they grieve at this time and give Barbara uh, strength. And based on what we'll see today, we'll pray for mature thinking for her as she cries out to the Lord for wisdom uh, during this trial in her life. And as we desire to be a blessing to her, uh, that we will have wisdom as well as we go through this with her. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the body of Christ that helps us uh, to realize we're not alone. Other believers that have gone through trials and go through trials with us, I pray that you would help uh, Barbara to know your presence as she has gone through the valley of the shadow of death that you promised to be with her. I pray that she would know your presence in a remarkable way today, tomorrow, and the days and weeks ahead. I pray that she would respond to this trial with joy um, and that her sister who doesn't know you and other family that don't know you, that you draw them to Barbara's Savior. Through this, I pray that as a church we'd be a blessing to her and encouragement uh, to her and that we would uh, give her hope and comfort from you, the God of all comfort, as you have comforted us. I pray that you would give us uh, knowledge and wisdom on how to comfort her as well. And I pray that uh, you'd be glorified in our message this morning. pray also for Joan Martin, who we, we rejoiced to see last week, but uh, you give her uh, comfort as she is a long road of recovery. And I pray for others in our church that have uh, trials every day as they face various trials that you give us the grace we need to think like Christ, to act like Christ, to talk like Christ, to pray like Christ, and that you'd conform us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to talk this morning from James 1 about how do we go from immature thinking, and we'll kind of, in our message this morning, think of this side of the platform as the immature Christian. And all of us are saved. We start off right here. We're baby Christians. We're born again. We have a lot of growing to do. And some people, as Christians, you may have been saved 10, 20, 30 years, and you are here. You haven't really grown that much. Oh, yeah, you've been saved for decades, but you haven't thought like Christ. You haven't meditated like Christ. You haven't rejoiced in trials like Christ. And you haven't progressed at all, or very little, in your sanctification, in your growth like Christ. And some of you have been saved, and you grew rapidly like crabgrass. <laughs> And you go rapidly, and you are well on your way to Christ-likeness, although none of us are going to achieve Christ-likeness in this life. Um, but you should have progress. And I've heard it said that you don't measure spiritual progress in days or weeks or months. 
probably not even in years, but decades. And if you have been saved for decades, you should be able to look back at your life and say, wow, I have grown as a Christian. And it's because of Christ uh, helping me and me walking with Christ that I have been able to grow as a Christian. If you're still way back here, though, and you look and say, how did they do it? How do people that are way down the line of Christian maturity, they've been saved for less time than me, but they are so they so much remind me of Jesus. When I read my Bible, I think of these people. I look at Christ's life and how he treated people that were unlovely, how he treated people that were uh, beggars, how he treated people that had that were demon possessed, that were we would say modern-day addicts, people that we may try to avoid, but that's not Jesus' response to them. And that's not godly, mature Christians' response either. And how is it when, that, when Christians who are mature and they're over here somewhere and they have various trials, as James 1 has said, and they have various trials and it seems like as they go through the trials of various kinds that they are joyful, that they're still praising God and they're still asking me how I am doing while I know they are going through serious trials. They're still ministering through these trials. They're still able to praise God from whom all blessings flow and praise him all creatures here below. And they're not just going through the motions, they're actually praising God from their heart. How do they do that? And if you're immature and you're over here and you're looking at those people saying, how do they do that? It's they have taken what James has taught his church. This church now is scattered abroad in the Roman Empire and told them about various trials. And in as they've gone through various trials, they've learned to walk with the Lord, realizing that the Lord has always walked with them. And so we're going to learn as we study the book of James, how do we go from immature Christian thinking to mature Christian thinking? This book is not designed for unsaved people. If you're here today, you don't know Christ. James is going to be a foreign, he's going to almost like I'm speaking a foreign language. It's going to be like a similar reading the book of Proverbs and saying, yeah, I want to be wise, but this doesn't make any sense. Okay, James is not going to make sense to you. And so I wouldn't start, if you don't know Christ, I'd read John in the New Testament or Romans or Galatians, but I wouldn't start with James, although chronologically, I believe James is written first of all the New Testament books, and that's why we're here after we've studied the life of Christ and the book of Acts. So we're going to go slowly through the book of James. It may take us about six months to get through uh, the truth here, and I, I want to go slow instead of quickly like we have gone through the life of Christ and the book of Acts so that we don't miss anything and the truth that James brings out for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is truth that God the Holy Spirit wants us to learn. The first thing that we'll see our, this whole message is about mature thinking. We cannot be mature unless we think like mature believers. And if you want to grow up physically, you have to stop thinking like an eight-year-old. It's okay for eight-year-olds to think like an eight-year-old because they're eight. It's not okay for a 16-year-old to think like an 8-year-old. It's not okay for a 24-year-old to think like an 8-year-old. 
It is not okay for a 70-year-old to think like an 8-year-old. We all in our culture say, you need to grow up. And you need to grow up in your thinking. So as a Christian, I'm going to challenge us, and James is going to challenge us, to grow up in our thinking. We're not going to count it all joy when we face various trials unless we think a certain way. And James is going to help us to think a certain way so that when we have various trials, and we're all going to have them, we're going to rejoice knowing what God is doing. So we read James 1, verses 1 to 12. And so last week we looked at Uh, The various trials and the one right response is joy because we know what God is doing and we know the God who is behind this and his, his wisdom is available to us if we would ask. Now James is going to give a warning today. So this, uh, this text is about praying and verse 12 may start in your Bible, a new paragraph, but the commentaries that I have looked at, um, probably the best way to look at verse 12 is probably to group it with the the passage before, instead of starting a new paragraph, maybe start a new paragraph in verse 13, because verse 12 still talks about trials, where verse 13 talks about temptation. God is not behind the temptation, which we'll see next week. So trials is the theme of verses 2 to 12, so that's why I group verse 12, and uh, in most of our Bibles, ESV Bible that I'm looking at has a paragraph, new paragraph starting in verse 12, but we'll include verse 12 in today's uh, message. So what does verses 6 to 8, if we were going to summarize these, what do they look like? I chose for a a theme for these, these verses, pessimistic thinking. How does a pessimistic person, and if you got the label pessimist, I have talked to people and I don't, I don't think, now extreme optimists may look at me as a pessimist, but most people that I have uh, talk to say, man, you're optimistic. Um, okay. And I have talked to people that are more optimistic than me. Uh, if you've heard Rand Hummel preach and talk to him, he is a very optimistic person. Um, and I admire him because of that. But if you have ever had someone said to you, well, that's kind of pessimistic. What is a pessimistic person? How do they think? Pessimistic person may look today and say, oh, 20% chance of rain. It's probably going to rain tonight, sports nights, first night. It's just like uh, that to just rain on uh, first night of sports nights. You're like, what? Who's behind the rain? God? So God wants us to be rained out tonight. Well, no, I'm not saying that. Well, that's how you're thinking in a pessimistic way. Or a pessimist would say, here's sports nights. I don't really like sports, or I don't think anyone's going to come tonight. We're in New England, and no one ever gets saved in New England. Nothing ever good happens in New England. And you're like, and you just go home, and you're like, who wants to be around you when you think like that? We have all struggled with pessimistic thinking, though. As an extreme optimist, I would say, I I came thinking we had this uh, car show. That we planned, and the first car show didn't happen. We had a car show planned. I was going to bring a car inside the building and detail it all. I had all these plans, and it rained, and we didn't. We wisely didn't bring a car in the building to detail it. And instead of being outreach, it was more uh, we as 
20 or, or so guys from church, we got together, and if you remember that first car show attempt, it didn't even happen. And I was discouraged. And if you're typically a pessimistic person, and you're trying to believe in God, trying to exercise faith as you go through various trials, you're always looking at the negative. What could happen? A pessimist will look at a lump on their arm and say, probably cancer. Yep, I probably got six months to live. And they self-diagnose. And you're thinking, what? It's probably just a pimple. Or it's probably just something that needs you to get the doctor to look at it. Okay? Don't self-diagnose and already put yourself in the grave in six months. And how are you going to tell your family? And you're going to live, as you go through various trials, it's a horrible way to live. You probably have an ulcer and other physical problems just because of your negative thinking. Well, James is going to address these negative thinking because we all go through various trials. And if we're thinking like James wants us to think, we cannot face various trials with a, the glass is always half full or less. Yeah, yeah, the, it, life is just bad. That's not how Christians need to think. Well, James addresses this as we approach God, who gives generously. We're going to look at verse 5 as it starts the prayer passage. If any of you lacks wisdom as you go through various trials, let him ask God. Why should we ask God for wisdom? Because he gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't rebuke us when we ask him for wisdom as we go through trials. And it will be given him. So the wisdom that we lack, we ask God he gives it to us because he is generous and he will not rebuke us. Based on the character of God, we need to avoid pessimistic thinking. In verse 6, but let him ask in faith. And faith here is opposite of pessimism. Let him ask in faith. God will give me the wisdom I need. That's the end of verse 5. How does that fit with verse 6? James is now going to warn us, and this is a warning passage. Primarily, this whole sermon could be a warning message. But we have to avoid pessimistic thinking because James 1.6 says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. So as if you didn't realize what faith is and how you need to ask God in faith, you can't doubt. So asking God to provide for you without doubting, thinking, I don't really think he's going to give me this. I don't really think he's got the wisdom I need. I don't think he's got the grace I need. I'm going to pray, though, because that's what Christians do, going through trials. But we think at times that we're mature in our Christian life until we go through various trials and until we start crying out to God for wisdom and we start having significant doubts. And what James is saying, you're not over there. You're really here. You're an immature Christian whenever you go through various trials and you cry out to God because we're told to cry out to God or just in desperation you cry out to God. But in your thinking, as you're crying out to God, you're thinking, I don't think he hears. I don't think he cares. I don't think he's going to answer. Or he's not going to answer in a way that I would like. You're doubting. And James says... When you doubt, this is, the, this is what you're like. So we don't have to illustrate this because James illustrates it for us. Verse 6 continues. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, if you've been to the ocean, you've seen 
waves. If you've been to the ocean with a hurricane, remnants of a hurricane around us, or strong thunderstorms, there's a lot of wind. And if you go on a nice calm day, the waves are low. But if you go on a very windy day, and if you really like to ride the waves, you're gonna go as much wind as possible, you're gonna expect, if there's really high winds, 50 mile an hour winds, you're gonna expect huge waves. Why? Because water is unstable. If I had a glass of water, which I don't, and I said, you wanna see how unstable water is? I'll just dump it right here. It's not gonna stay on that if I have enough water. It's going to run wherever, wherever way the floor is sloped. If it's level, it's going to run off of the communion table here. Why? Because water is unstable. You know what Jacob said to Reuben and the end of Reuben's life, end of Jacob's life? You are unstable as water. So James gives us, draws on that picture. He's writing to Jewish people who knew about Reuben. They may have been some of them Reubenites. Descendants from Reuben, who their forefather was unstable as water. He sometimes was a leader, sometimes was an uh, adulterer, um, and just whatever he just whenever whatever way he um, te was tempted, he often gave in to it. This is how immature Christians live. They are easily swayed. Now, if you have ever been a parent, you know some of your kids are easily swayed. They can be talked into almost anything. And those kids, if you parent them, you're thinking, oh, I don't know if they should go to this party because they may be talked into doing something dumb. They're going to end up on the news. And I don't want my kids ending up on the news. So I don't think they should go because they're easily swayed. Or I don't think they should hang out with certain kids because even though they, might, they may personally be okay, they can be talked into pleasing anybody. And this is how immature Christians live. They can be talked into anything. They're very unstable. They're given to temptation a lot. And James says if you give in to temptation, especially this temptation, while praying, you are doubting that God will actually give you wisdom. You are like a wave of the sea. If the wind blows this way, the waves go this way. If the wind blows this way, they blow this way. If the, waves, or if the wind is strong, the waves are higher. If the wind is not strong, the waves are lower. The waves are, have really nothing to do. They are just servants of the wind. And that's the picture James says here. This is a picture of immature faith. And our faith is tried every time we have various trials. Every time we go through trials, it tests our faith. It tests our endurance. Will we stop praying because I'm not seeing answers? I'm not seeing answers that I want. Or I don't even think, some of you may not ever go to a prayer meeting, and I've been here eight years and I've never seen some of you ever at a prayer meeting. And it might be because, lack of schedule, yes. But some of you think prayer is a waste of time. You say that's harsh. If you think and I think that prayer is a waste of time, I will not pray. But if I think prayer is what we need as a church, we're always going to have prayer meeting. We're always going to encourage people who are doing one-to-one -one discipleship spend some of that time in prayer. We begin our service, worship service in prayer. We close our service in prayer. It's not just because this is what we do. It's because we think prayer, we all need prayer. 
We all need to demonstrate faith in God personally. You need to be a praying Christian at home. You may think you're mature here, but if you have a lack of prayer life, and I struggle with this as much as probably you do, we actually at times are way over here. And only you know how much time you spent crying out to God, expecting him to do things that you cannot do. God wants us to be thinking correctly as we're praying during these trials. And if we're doubting, we're like a wave of the sea. He continues this picture in verse 7, describing the person who's doubting while praying, who's really immature, but they may think they're a mature Christian. Verse 7, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So what, is, what are we asking for? In verse 5, they're asking for wisdom. So you go through trials. You don't have the wisdom you need. You don't know what to do. You cry out to God, God, I need help. I need knowledge. I need wisdom. What is my next step? I don't know how to face this as a faithful Christian. And we sang, may the Lord find us faithful. I hope that's your prayer. And a faithful Christian keeps demonstrating faith to God. How do we see that? We see that in, in our prayer life. But we have to pray without doubting. Because we'll be very unstable and we'll eventually probably give up praying because it doesn't work. And sometimes we, we blame God for not answering our prayer when it's really we doubt. And we'll, we'll get a quote here about, uh, uh, from a, um, an author that will help us um, fill in this picture. But a lack of faith receives what? We're asking for wisdom you receive no wisdom. So here you're going through a trial as a Christian. It's testing your faith. You're crying out to God, but you're not getting any answers because you're doubting. And James says in this, let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. You're not going to get the wisdom that you need. So what happens when you go through trials without the wisdom you need? You cry out to God doubting and you don't get the wisdom. If you were mature, you're sliding this way for sure. We, we may call it backsliding if you stay on this path. But you're going away from God. Because people who are mature and go through trials and they're walking with God, they're getting wisdom from God. But if you're not getting wisdom, then you're going to start blaming God and other people. God's let me down. God is not there for me. I thought he was the God of all wisdom and comfort, and I'm not getting it. And you're, it's your fault because God always does what's right. What does uh, Psalms uh, 145.17 say? The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He always does what is right. So we can't blame God if our pessimistic thinking leads us to a lack of faith, leaves us unstable, and then verse 8 completes the picture. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. In all his ways is a Hebrewism, kind of like we have kick the bucket is a way to say die. Um, it's a Hebrewism that you probably know Proverbs 3, 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's an all-encompassing term. That there is nothing... Outside of all your ways, Psalm 145 again says God is uh, faithful 
in all his uh, ways, or righteous in all his ways. God always does what's right. Everything God does is right, the psalmist says. So what is the person who doubts God? How are all of his ways described? Well, it says in verse 8, he is unstable in all his ways. This will be someone who is moody. Have you ever talked to someone who's extremely moody? If you ever were a child and your parent was moody, you're like, I hope they're having a good day. I hope they're having a good day. Dad, Mom, I wrecked the car. <laughs> or your boss is moody and you have just done something bad at work that you're told not to do and you did it anyway and you've got to confess and you're just hoping your boss is having a good day instead of a bad day when you go in and say, you know what, I actually made a mistake and I cost the company so much money. You're hoping they're ha it's not a good thing. You're never going to find that God is moody. He is stable, righteous, faithful, kind in all of his words and works. But a lack of faith in us and our part brings us to be double-minded, which shows us that we are unstable in all our ways. So what does the doubting prayer look like? Okay, Have you ever talked to someone who you thought could help you, but you actually doubted whether they would? Dad, Mom, I need money, but I don't really think you're going to give it. Okay, If that is your thinking, you know your parents have the money to help you. Dad, Mom, I need 20 bucks for this youth activity. Okay. Or I need 20 bucks to put gas in the car. Well, okay. But if your hand is not out, you're doubting. But I don't really think you're going to give it. So you stand there looking at something like this. You just petitioned, but your hand's not out to receive anything. You're doubting. You're a pessimist. We cannot pray to God for wisdom and then keep our hands behind our back doubting whether or not he's really going to give it. We're praying to God for wisdom and then we're holding our hand out saying, God, unless you give it, I am I'm in trouble. And as we go through various trials, we need various types of grace from God. Sometimes it's financial and God knows that. He knows exactly how much we need when we need it. So we cry out to him. God, I'm in trouble. I cannot pay my bills unless you provide this amount of money in this time frame. And we cry out to God and we hold out our hand. We don't stand before a, an almighty God who is good and gracious, have, having cried out to him with our hands behind our back. Or, as this one author says, Rudolf Steer, or Steyer, a doubting petitioner offers to God not a steady hand or heart so that he, God, cannot deposit in it his gift. If we go to a gracious, powerful God needing grace and power and wisdom and strength and whatever we need, and we ask him for it, sometimes when you say, God, like the father who knew Christ could heal his son but said, help my unbelief, sometimes we need to cry out like that. God, I know you can do it. I know my hand is out, but my hand is not st steady. My heart is like, I, I think he can. I know he can sometimes. Will he? I don't know. 
and our hand is stable, unstable, and we say, first prayer, God, steady my hand so that you can place the gift in it. Because a doubting petitioner who knows his hand is unsteady or his heart is unsteady, saying, God, I don't have the strength even to hold my hand still so you can place the gift in it. It's a prayer that God loves to hear. If my child really has a need, legitimate need, and I, being a wicked father, having the ability to meet that child's need, I will, as a wicked father, supply that need. How much more will your heavenly Father give good things to us who ask him? And James says, just ask in faith. So that is the first quote. The second one. A.T. Robertson, in his commentary on James, says this, the pessimist is not a, a representative, I would say a good representative of Christianity. He is not a representative, I would say, based on James, of mature Christianity. When I know God, I cry out to God in a way that maybe an immature Christian who doesn't know God very well is going to cry out while, while doubting. And as I walk with the Lord in the light of his word, a glory he sheds on my way, and as I walk with the Lord, I see him provide, and he provides in various trials, in various ways, over and over and over again. And I'm learning to trust God so that as I cry out in the next trial for wisdom, my hand is steady. My expectations are very high because they're based on the character of my God. And I'm not doubting whether or not he hears, he cares, or he will supply. So the next thing that we see in verses 9 to 11 is positional. I almost said positive thinking, but in a culture, I cannot even use that as a, as a, as a, as a text or a, as a, a point because there is so much positive thinking around us, absent from God, that we have everything in us so that we should be positive is unbiblical, is unchristian is actually anti-Christ thinking. But it's popular, and, and churches that are 40,000-plus people have leaders that preach this way. And you can buy their books about having your best life now, and that's inspirational thinking, but that's not Christian thinking. And trials are absent from the people's lives who have positive thinking. But this is not wishing my problems away. This is not pessimistic thinking, doubting God, but how do I need to think about my position before God as I pray to God while I'm going through trials? That's what James addresses here in verses 9 through 11. So verse 9. Let the lowly brother, that's the poor, financially poor brother, boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you today have a lot of money, let's say you're a billionaire. You know what our culture says? Everyone wants to talk to you. Your opinion is very, very valuable. Most people running for president are very well off before they start running for president today. 
because people value wealthy people's opinion. You know whose opinion we will not, hardly anyone cares about? A homeless person. Think about it. Someone who's sitting on the street begging or standing by a street corner here in Lowell that's asking for money. You know what people don't do? Stop and ask them for advice. Why? Because they're looked down upon. And those people know they're looked down upon. And if you here have less money, you think, than most everybody else in church, you will think poorly about yourself and your position before God. Why should I pray in faith? Because I don't have a lot of money. And our culture says, as did James's culture, wealthy people's opinion matters, their position matters, they're going to run for office, they have more standing before whoever. The president is never going to ask someone who is homeless probably to come and visit the White House and take them out for dinner. But if you're a billionaire, you've got a good chance. The president's going to ask you, hey, come to my luncheon or whatever. Why? Because... That's how, that's, that's how human nature works. So financially poor people, even in a church, and these are both Christians in verses 9 through 11, a poor Christian and a wealthy Christian. Do we know that to be true of the early church in Jerusalem? Absolutely. That's why Barnabas sold stuff and gave it to the poor within the church. Ananias and Sapphira tried to cheat the system or tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. They are trying to do the same thing. Um, so there were poor Christians and wealthy Christians. And the poor Christians probably did not pray like they should. Why? Because they thought, people on earth don't want to hear my opinion. They don't want to hear when I need help. They're not going to help me anyway. So why should I pray to God? Because I don't have finances. I should just keep quiet and let the rich people in a service pray. And James says, oh no, don't think that way. As you go through trials... Wealthy people aren't always mature, and poor people aren't always immature. James is going to say that thinking has nothing to do with the family of God. If you have no money, you can be a very mature Christian. If you have a lot of money, you can be a very immature Christian. If you rely on your wealth, as you go through trials, your trials may be less, because if it's financial, you're like, you know what, I'll just write a check. If I have any doctor's bills, I'm not afraid of getting a, a bill in the mail from this procedure I have because I got money. That doesn't help your prayer life, though. It doesn't help you go through various trials trusting on the Lord with all of your heart. It helps you to trust on your own understanding. So while poor people can be looked down upon and wealthy people can be looked down on poor people, James says this, this kind of thinking should not affect your prayer life, and this is how you need to think. If you are financially poor, you can boast glory in your exaltation. That means your position before God is not, nothing to do with your financial status. That's what James says here. Both for the poor and for the wealthy. Your maturity as a Christian has nothing to do with your how much money you have in the bank. So if you're poor here today, you know what? You need to keep praying. Why? Because you have the same position before God as the wealthy people do. So don't 
decrease your prayer life, you have as, just as much right to the throne of grace as any Christian. Because your standing before God has nothing to do with finances. It has everything to do with who bought you with his blood, Jesus. And we stand before the throne of grace to find grace and favor and help in time of need, not based on how much, how well we have handled our money, how well we have saved and planned for retirement. And those are all good things. But sometimes God wants us to be to lack finances. And God does not want you to be wealthy. He wants you to be like Christ. And Christ did not even have a place to lay his head. So this whole garbage that's being preached and promoted as inspirational, self-help, have your best life now, God wants you to be wealthy and wise, is satanic. It is not the gospel. It is not Christianity. And James' uh, writing is going to say, let the lowly brother in our churches, in a congregation of Christians, think that I have as much right to the throne of God. So I need to be praying. So how does the rich man need to think? And now the rich man is, has two verses, and he's got a story, or he's got an illustration for him, like the doubting person does. Okay, so verse 10 says, the rich in his humiliation. So rich people would look down on poor people. He's going to go after the rich and the poor again in James 2. But here he says, in context of praying, poor rich people in Jesus' day, Pharisees, Sadducees, Look at how their wealth corrupted their praying. And Jesus tells the parable of the publican and the, 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 uh, the Pharisee. And the Pharisee looked down his long nose and said, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And if you are well off here as a church, as a Christian, it is likely that you're going to be tempted to look down your long nose at people that need help from the fellowship on, on occasion and need some encouragement financially. And they don't have a million dollars in the bank to retire on. They're still working into their retirement years. And that's okay. Because your position, if you're very wealthy and you think wealthy people have access to places that un unwealthy people don't, a politician that has a lot of money has access to speak and share, and be invited to, and has friends that unwealthy people don't have. But a wealthy Christian who gets saved, he still has his wealth. He comes into church thinking, yeah, everybody wants my opinion. This is how life works in a wealthy culture. It worked that way in James's culture. It works that way in our culture. James says to this new Christian, he's immature, he's thinking, because of my wealth, of course people want me to pray for them. Of course people want me to be their friend, because I'm wealthy. And James says, when you pray in trials, your wealth has nothing to do with your standing before God. Here's how you need to think. Verse 10. The rich in your humiliation. God will humble you if you're proud because of your wealth. And here's how you need to think, rich man, in your humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. We have 
somewhat of that picture here, but if we were to, I was trying to think of a flower that just appears for a little time, and I'm thinking of daffodils, okay? None of us have daffodils right now, I don't think, that are blooming, because daffodils are spring flowers. They come up in the spring, they bloom for a couple weeks maybe, and they fade. And that's how temporary wealth really is. And because it's temporary, in God's eyes, it's not that valuable. It doesn't change our position at all because it's temporary. And James says, like the flower of the grass, it, it's, it's going to pass away. And then he continues in verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass and its flower falls. All its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So if you think you're standing before God is better because you're wealthy, think again, James says. That as you go through various trials, I'll just write a check for it. It's no big deal. I don't have to cry out to God for wisdom. Or if I do cry out to God, I've got a better chance of Him hearing me because other people on earth hear me, because I'm wealthy. And James says, nope, that's not how it works before the throne of God. Poor people are exalted. Rich people are made low. Everybody's on the same level. Now, wealthy people do not want to hear that, and poor people want to hear that. So if your thinking of praying has affected your, your financial status, has affected your needing to pray or lacking to pray, your I don't think I can pray because I'm, I'm poor and no one cares what I see, even, even God doesn't care what I have to say, you can't think that way. And if you're wealthy, you should be humble because this is a temporary wealth and riches. And if you don't think wealth and riches are temporary, read Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes. Everything fades away. And your wealth that you've accumulated may be inherited by fools who will waste it. And we've seen that story over over again in history. So in the Christian prayer time, our position before God is the same. And I avoid pessimistic thinking. I am promoted, encouraged to pray humbly and boldly before God because Wealth has nothing to do with my prayer life, and it, it has nothing to do with when I go through various trials. Trials of poor people are the same as trials of rich people. They go through various trials so that we learn to trust God. And finally today, God's promises. Our prayer life should be, um, I think we, we sing a song, by faith uh, or uh, a steadfast faith. Oh, for a faith that make, frames its prayer on the promises of God. We sing a song standing on the promises of Christ my God, Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. How do I pray in a way that God's promises are clear? Well, I'm praying that tonight when unsaved people come, that they will see God's promise of eternal life and see God's promise of eternal destruction, and they'll fear God and turn away from evil. Why? Because God promises the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Those are both promises. Same verse, Romans 6.23. Who needs the free gift? All of us need the free gift, but we're all earning uh, destruction. And here there's a promise that God gives. Blessed is the man. It sounds like a beatitude that Christ taught in Matthew 5. It sounds like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. 
So blessed, happy, content, satisfied, joyful is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's not escaping trials. It's going through the trials, staying under the weight, the burden of the various trials. And 1 Peter says you'll come forth as gold when your faith is tried. So God's promises have to control the way we think and will come out in how we pray. So how do mature Christians need to think while we pray? And this is still talking about trials which are from God, verse 12, and you'll see temptations uh, uh, is verse 13, which is why we're going to group verse 12. And so we're staying steadfast under trial. We'll keep praying. What is a mature Christian's response whenever you cry out to God? You're crying out to God for wisdom with a steady hand. What if God doesn't answer the first day? We keep crying out to God. Because in crying out to God, what am I saying? I'm saying I have no wisdom. Only The only help I'm ever going to get is from my Father who's in heaven. And he's going to give to me generously. I don't know when he's going to give it to me, but he's going to give it to me. And I'm trusting that my only hope and help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's the living God. He hears my prayer. He's the God of my righteousness. All these psalms and everything, all the truth that we know about God causes us to keep on praying. And as we keep on praying, James says, you're blessed. This is how we count it all joy, knowing that we are blessed. And the mature Christian endures trials confident of God's blessing. Verse 12 continues, For when he has stood the test, he's passed the test. He didn't avoid the test. He went through the test. He took the test of the various trial. And then he has come out and he has received, he will receive, that's a guarantee, the crown of life. What is the crown of life? I don't really have any idea. It's a reward, and it's good. That's it. That's all I know. And you're going to want it. Because it's a reward, and it's good, and it's from God. All of our crowns that a mature Christian gets in heaven aren't going to be like, yes, my crowns. Like Smeagol and my precious, right? We're not going to treat our crowns like that at all. All the crowns that a mature Christian are going to receive, what are we going to do with them? We're casting them back at Jesus' feet because he is worthy to receive all the glory and praise. So God's promises keeps us enduring trials. This is how mature Christians stay in the trial, stay in the fight. You might fall down and doubt at times in your praying, and you say, no, that was wrong because James 1 tells me it's wrong. God, I trust you. If you want me to endure this, I'll keep praying. I'll keep trusting you. You are my God and my King. So mature, mature Christians endure trials confident of his blessing, and the mature Christians endure trials convinced of their one command. What's our one command? James is written before Matthew, but Matthew draws on the Old Testament. What is our one command to obey? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. That's Old Testament, that's New Testament. That's your one command in life. Love the Lord your God. Do you know various trials test your love for the Lord your God? And you will doubt at times if God really loves you. How many of you have doubted that God really loved you? My hand's up. Haven't, haven't we all 
doubted. This trial's going on and on and on. God must not love me. Nope, nope, that's an incorrect thought. Ungodly thought. Mature Christians endure trials knowing they have one command. Their one command throughout all of life, I have to love the Lord my God with all of my heart. And that is the end of verse 12. You will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What will keep us faithful in trials, steadfast in trials, asking God without wavering, without doubting? What will keep us from being proud in, uh, in comparing our wealth to how we position ourselves before God? All of that is remedied with this one simple command, love the Lord your God. And as we all start over here with a immature love for God, God, I'll serve you if an immature Christian prays. If you get me out of this, okay, God, you got me out of it, okay. That's immature. And a, a mature Christian saying, I am going to love the Lord my God because God commands it. Yeah, and then we start moving this way. A trial, I don't have the wisdom. God, I need wisdom and grace, and he gives it. Yeah, okay, I'm going this way. But I still doubt God, yes. But whenever we doubt, we repent of that because we're disobeying God's word. And as we pray, we're doubting less and doubting less and trusting God more. And our position before God is secure. It's stable. It is based on who Christ is and what Christ has done and not on our wealth. And we're moving this way throughout life. So when we look in the mirror, and James is going to bring up a mirror in the end of James 1, so we're going to look in the mirror of God's Word. So what do you see this morning as you look in the mirror? Do you see maturity? Because James tells us, if we ask in doubting, they're showing us immaturity. Ah, oh, yes, that is me. I'm an immature, doubting, pessimistic Christian. That's okay. If you will pray that to God and say, God, I'm an immature, doubting, you need to repent. And God, I have prayed and doubted you this week. And if you keep doing that, you're going to backslide. You're going from maturity to immaturity. But if you say, God, help my unbelief. I want to trust you with all of my heart. You're moving this direction. So, first question. Are you doubting less while praying? So compare your prayer life from now till 10 years ago. Do you doubt less and trust more as you pray? I'm talking 10 years. I'm talking a long amount of time where you can evaluate and say, you know what? I doubt the same. I really haven't grown in this area of my prayer life. Something's got to change. What's going to change? You memorize James 1, whatever verses really convict you and say, God, help me to meditate on this and claim this truth and doubt less while I pray. Are you doubting less while you're praying? The mirror of God's word answers that question for you. Second question, are you thinking about your position before God while praying? Are you thinking about your wealth, financial wealth, thinking like that while you're praying and it caused you to go one way or the other? Both a poor person who says, I can't pray, and a rich person who says, of course I can pray, both of those are immature thinking. So are you thinking about your position before God while you're praying? I grew up in a Christian home, and I can think, well, 
I grew up in a Christian home, so my position before God's better because I grew up praying. I could pray before I was saved. Foolish, proud, immature thinking. We have to think of our position before God. What causes us to be in right relationship with God? Trials cause us to struggle with that, but we don't have to. And then finally, last question, probably the most convicting. Are you loving God more? Compare yourself to where you were 10 years ago. Are you more in love with God today than you were 10 years ago? Only you can answer that. Only you can say, yes, I love the Lord my God with all my heart more today than I did 10 years ago. I'm walking with God and I make decisions based on my love for God more today than I did 10 years ago. I love God's word more today than I did 10 years ago. I love talking to God because I love him more today than I did 10 years ago. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the mirror of your word. Thank you for the wisdom that we have learned this morning from James. Thank you for the Holy Spirit using James to write this, and it's still convicting to us. I pray that the conviction that we have now would turn into praying humbly before you, and the conviction that the Holy Spirit is putting on our heart right now we would deal with the sin in our soul, the wrong thinking, the immature thinking that we have put up with and justified maybe for years, you've brought to light. And I pray that you'd have give us the grace we need to agree with your word, that we fall short of the glory of God. We need repentance, we need confession. We need accountability in our lives so that we can consistently grow to love you more, to pray uh, more and more correctly, and to think better as we pray and go through various trials. Thank you for the trials that you give us. I pray that you'd keep sending them our way until we are like Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.